0: And this is the Green Majority. Stefan is eating a plate and his gums are bleeding. And this is on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your beautiful local community radio station or on the Harbinger Media Network. I'm David Hostetter here with Stefan Hostetter.
1: I am not eating a plate. The
0: audience can't see what I can see. And Lauren Latour is not joining us today. Stefan will be interviewing a long interview we have today with
1: Norm Van Eden Petersman. who's was the member advocate for the strong towns, which is arguing to basically push back against the car centric, more destructive ways that towns have been built over the last 50, 60, 70 years.
0: How do you build a town in a destructive way?
1: Parking minimums.
0: and What is a parking minimum?
1: There are... Wow. <laughs> You need to listen to this interview. <laughs> a parking minimum is there are many rules across North America that say you cannot have an establishment without a certain number of parking spots. Okay, yeah, yeah. For for example, he talks about there being a number of parking spots per bowling lane that is required in many places.
0: Bowling lane, not alley, but lane. Per lane. So if you've got nine lanes, that's like 90 spots. Exactly. Ten lanes, 100 spots. Exactly. Otherwise, you can't have that lane.
1: Or uh, Yeah, or that bowling alley.
0: And, well, how else do they build towns destructively?
1: They only allow for sprawl without allowing for more density. They don't allow trees to be on major streets because people keep driving into them.
0: All right. Stefan's interview is coming up. I was going to mention... A couple of, uh, this is something actually Mr. Matthew Klippenstein sent us. He sent us this. Oh, Mr. yeah. Mr. Matthew Klippenstein, friend of the show. This is a he great He corresponds story. with our Slack group. And he sent us this story from LiveScience.com. Orcas have sunk three boats in Europe and appear to be teaching others to do the same. Uh, scientists think a traumatized orca initiated the assault on boats after a critical moment of agony, and that that the behavior is spreading. Listen yeah. to the, this <laughs> is listen amazing. to the listen to the incredible backflips they've done to like scientize the language of this or- orca. It can't it can't just be that the orca is angry and wants to destroy the boat. It's that a traumatized orca at a cri- critical moment of agony in the behavior spreading.
1: No, but you're missing this the most interesting part, which is the behavior spreading. This orca is teaching
0: other orcas to attack boats. Right. See, that doesn't sound like a critical moment of agony. I mean... That's, that, does not, that does not sound like a one-off flip out from one orca who's traumatized. This sounds like a plan.
1: Honestly, I hope it is. And I am really firmly on Team Orca.
0: The Orkinus Orca. That's what they're calling that also known as killer whales. Oh, it was a yacht that they struck. I was not aware it was a yacht that they struck. This is satisfying.
1: No, yeah. Everything about the story. I mean, beyond the fact that we are killing tons of orcas because of our terrible boating behaviors.
0: Listen to what one of the scientists said about this. We do not interpret that the orcas are teaching the young, although the behavior has spread to the young vertically, simply by imitation, and later horizontally among them because they consider it something important in their lives. (laughs) What? (laughs) Imagine the amount of orcas you have to study to even be able to say something like that.
1: The thing about science these days... Spreading vertically,
0: then horizontally, and it's important to their lives.
1: (laughs) If you are going to get a PhD now, you have to be way in depth. So there are definitely people who know just an amazing amount about orcas.
0: Defensive behavior based on trauma gains more strength. I think the scientists, quite frankly, think too highly of themselves, but... (laughs) What? What? They just think they know so much and they don't know that much. This does not make any sense. So they so they so they resort to like using psychological language no, which I think, is vague.
1: I think that's what's almost definitely happening is that these orca these people know way, way, way more than we could possibly understand. Oh, here we go. Here we go. No. They did their PhD. I'm not saying I'm
0: not talking about orcas, I'm talking about psychology here, Seven. Defensive behavior based on trauma gains more strength for us every day.
1: I guarantee you, there are five. Oh, PhDs right, never mind, never mind, never mind. Never
0: mind. I, I read it incorrectly. I read it incorrectly. He's saying, as a theory, it gains more strength for them. All right, never mind. <laughs> I thought he was saying that trauma, defensive behavior based on trauma, becomes worse every day. I'm like, there's not exponential rise in all trauma. This, this is simply not possible. Um, second story, The Guardian is, is still. They've done a lot of the. The Guardian is not at least a lot of articles recently about carbon offsets okay so previously found that 90 percent of the specific jungle rainforest offsets uh put out by this the main offset rainforest packager company were not essentially worthless and now they're saying 90 percent of chevrons are are worthless
1: Yeah, 93% of offsets that Chevron bought that they counted towards towards its climate targets and voluntary carbon markets in the last couple of years uh, were too environmentally problematic to be classified as anything other than worthless or junk.
0: Does that mean they're committing fraud?
1: It's a voluntary carbon market, right? This is the problem with a lot of this stuff is that there's no one holding them accountable for saying this.
0: Okay. So because it's considered a voluntary market, they can say whatever they want?
1: I mean, a voluntary market is just, you know, it's made up of people who are there, and they're, as long as they all agree, then it counts, right? They're not making a legal claim, and the government's not holding them accountable, because that's, what, that's the, one of the major problems of voluntary markets, is that they are voluntary.
0: Right. And what makes it voluntary is that they're just choosing to value something that's not valued on the quote-unquote real market?
1: Well, they're agreeing to be a part of a car, quote-unquote carbon market, but... There is no actual real cap, and so they are buying emission reduction on this voluntary market, which basically is like, yeah, you can buy this, and it will, and we will say that you reduce that amount. But these voluntary markets don't have any actual teeth, because again, they're voluntary. So at any point in time, Chevron could just not do this anymore, and then it wouldn't matter.
0: Right, but but the, but if they say that they're doing it and they're not.
1: I mean, they they've bought these offsets. It's just that the offsets are bunk, and that's the thing. Most carbon markets are largely bunk. Like that's one of the biggest problems about trying to use you know a carbon price or tr- trying to use these market op- market mechanisms uh, to do this work is that they the, they their value relies on the value of the market itself, and the market itself has incentives to allow more people to create their, these offsets because they want more people in the market, but that also means they have incentive to look the other way and to claim that things are offsetting things that are not because then that shows that there's more carbon to be saved on their voluntary market. So it sort of has this like very problematic feedback loop.
0: And they write, the voluntary carbon offsets market is worth $2 billion and growing rapidly, despite little evidence of positive climate impact. Exactly. So it's a lot of sort of greenwashed money moving around. And essentially it's just going to continue to allow Chevron to pollute really. Yes. But if the company can't be held responsible who's selling them the carbon the carbon credits then you know they could really be doing anything. Well, like, they could set up a shell company and buy fake credits from them and then and then use that in there.
1: I mean each one of these markets has their own way that, that they claim they're paying attention to them, right? And each of these markets has the attempt to try to be or at least they're claiming to try to be real. And but again, even the best ones out there still have significant problems and really actually proving that they've reduced emissions. You know, like even the ones that are backed by governments have problems like this. And so the the voluntary market is just even weaker.
0: And now we will go to a song by the band Days on Parade. Right? Yep. Days on Parade, their song, Tommy. Shout out to
1: Days on Parade for being our featured artist of the week, letting us include on the podcast. What? What? You can't be groaning in the middle (laughs) of what I'm saying.
0: Days on Parade, our featured artist. (laughs) For this week, Days on Parade. Merci beaucoup.
1: And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, which we have anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network, some great folks and work being done over there. Check them out if you have not. As previewed earlier on the show, I am here with Norm Van Eden-Petersman the member advocate for Strong Towns. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much, Stephen. It's great to be on the show.
1: So by way of introduction, what is the Strong Towns organization and movement?
2: Yeah, the Strong Towns is about a message and there's an, a movement of people that are taking this message out there. And, and our core message is that the development pattern in North America is broken and is breaking our communities. And so we're seeking to change that pattern of development whether in towns or in cities across North America. Uh, the Strong Towns Movement began as a blog written by an engineer and a planner named Chuck Marone. He was raising questions about the ways in which we were building our communities and the ways in which the growth machine that he saw just pumping out houses and suburbs and track developments and all of that sort of stuff was beginning to result in in mounting financial problems for communities, as well as causing isolation, causing so many of the things that we now see more clearly around us the, the struggles of breaking infrastructure, aging infrastructure, disconnected communities, wasteful resource usage, and really, at, at its heart, a core fragility that makes us all worse off. And so the idea of the blog and the idea of the movement is that we need to get back to a way of building communities that makes us stronger and more resilient over the long term.
1: And so when, when did that blog come out?
2: It started in 2008. And then in 2009, in Minnesota, the organization was founded as a nonprofit organization. Since that time we've grown and gained, uh, we're almost at 5,000 members who are contributing on an ongoing basis in order to keep the organization afloat. And we're continuing to see just a, a growing audience well into the millions of people tuning in to the podcast, listening to, uh, to the YouTube material, tracking with our articles, sharing that content. And especially with three different types of audiences, we have elected officials that are getting into positions of, of responsibility in their community and saying, I, I didn't realize that the problems were this deep. How do we get out of the situation that we're in? We're also seeing more and more planners and engineers and other professionals that are saying, we recognize certain challenges that are baked into the way that our professions have been operating in the last 60, 70 years. We know that it, this isn't what it takes to build great places. And yet this, we're frustrated by the ways in which we're being asked to approve, you know, highways through communities Or to be able to continue to rubber stamp developments on the outskirts of a community while seeing all of this opposition and bureaucracy hindering the ability to add more housing within existing neighborhoods. And then you also have just concerned citizens. That that's where I come in as as someone that doesn't have a background in this field and yet said, this is break. You know, we're seeing the evidence of, of our communities breaking in so many different ways. We're struggling with these things. Costs keep going up. I live out in Delta, British Columbia, where housing costs have continued to get way out of whack and and are so far beyond what a regular person's means are that we know that we need to be able to bring about change to that and and strong towns is a very compelling way of addressing that through bottom up solutions trying to figure out ways for local communities to take stock of the resources they have and to to better themselves in in that way
1: awesome so we do want to get into sort of the more strong town pieces but before we do it's always nice to sort of get a bit of a personal element to this. And so can you tell us sort of about your story of how you got involved in small towns and yeah, how you came into it?
2: Yeah, I grew up on a farm outside of Lethbridge, Alberta. And so in that setting, I always thought that people in the city had, you know, just this glorious life where they were surrounded by other people. There was always kids around to be able to play sports with and, and enjoy things. But then I began to learn actually in a lot of cities because of the way that neighborhoods have been constructed kids aren't safe to be on the streets these days, or people or parents are worried about what their children are going to be up to because they're not being monitored or not being watched or carted around in SUVs. And so I began to kind of grapple with the reality that like farm life felt a little bit isolated, but why was it that people living in cities in dense communities were also feeling isolated in that? Went off to university and eventually became a pastor of a Christian church in Ontario. And in that setting, I was grappling with a question, why, do, why does the community feel disconnected? Is it all because they are being unneighborly and unsocial? Or is there actually something else at, at stake here? And as I looked into things like form-based code, neighborhood development, transportation reform, different pieces like that, pedestrian-oriented development, things like that, I began to realize, oh, a lot of our development pattern is shaping the way that our, we experience our environment. Uh, people are being actively disabled through the ways in which we stick hydro poles right in the middle of a sidewalk, or we insist on running six lanes of traffic right through the heart of what formerly used to be a walkable community. And it, as we continue to layer upon layer after layer after layer upon human habitation, it it really doesn't work anymore, and it becomes degraded in so many ways. And so I began just reading it as, as an amateur enthusiast, and over time, became more and more passionate that this this work really really matters for for the good of all for that that desire that we all have to to flourish in the place that we that we call home as well as to invite others in and when I became more involved in my moved out to Vancouver struggled with housing costs out here moved out to a suburb in Delta BC and there met with a bunch of people who were convinced that there was no room in their city for more people and I thought well that can't be right that really can't be right. We know that we have more than enough land, but we're not using it well. And so founded a housing advocacy organization called Deltons for People-Oriented Places. That led over time to then deeper connections with Strong Towns because I knew that if I could introduce people in my community to the work of Strong Towns, that there would be a great sort of cross-pollination there. And then over just last July, I started working for Strong Towns as the member advocate.
1: Awesome. And so- I will actually. I was going to get into the stuff, but I kind of curious. What does the member advocate do? Yeah. So the member advocate in, in this role, my
2: responsibility is to really connect with members across North America to be able to what I describe as the conveyor belt. Run it in two ways. One, share the materials and resources that Strong Towns has uh, to help people, because our our goal is to equip people to take action at the local level. So whether that is because they've just gotten elected to a city council office or they want to do a tactical urbanism project to create a a temporary roundabout on a neighborhood street, so that way it slows the vehicles, or start a community garden, whatever that looks like, want to get great content to them, to really help many, many people take action where they live, often by addressing the psychological barrier that people have, where they say, I don't know, like, I just don't have enough information, or I'm not the expert. And so I wrote an article a while back about hosting a block party, and I called it, I just hit print once I had hit print on the invite I realized well I'd be a fool to waste this paper I may as well go out distribute the flyers and we had 40 people show up it was the first one on our block in 38 years and it, and it was a great success and and it was about resolving that that inner dilemma that says I'm seized with this question of whether I should actually take action or whether I should leave it for someone else and so certainly in, in an environmental sense in so many other movements we all know that there's these core barriers but the other part of it is being able to celebrate, people's stories. And so I get to connect with people and hear about the stuff that they are doing in their community. was just asked by a a group in Hawaii, hey, can you share some of our story of what they're trying to do to bring back more community gardens, reshaping the way that their streets are being used? And and that's, I mean, Hawaii, we've got folks in Australia, we have uh, members all over the world, as well as uh, chiefly in North America, about 10% are in Canada. And that's been a really awesome part of it. So Within the organization, I essentially uh, get to be the voice of the members, and and anytime that we make a decision about uh, re- new programs or new things like that, a big question is: Norm, do you think that members need this? Do you think that we want this? How will that help us to connect and and support folks where where they are? So, a Strong Downs member is just somebody that has made a contribution within the last year, but our I always say that you know the vast majority of our of our members are are adjacent to us, are alongside us. Are, are in working in you know other fields or other partnerships. And yet we're advancing towards the same goal. Awesome.
1: Okay. So I feel like you've given us a little bit of hints in your answers so far, but maybe directly, what does a strong town look like? A strong town is
2: a place that is defined by the presence of people as well as their potential for flourishing. And so it is a strong town is a strong community that makes good use of existing assets. Make sure that if you have land, that you're using that land in a very careful, calculated way. If there is green spaces that you allow them to be flourishing, allow them not just to be degraded by heavy traffic passing on through and sidewalks that get you part of the way and then stop. All of the different things that we've become accustomed to simply because of the way in which our communities are are weakened by auto-oriented development. But a core part of what it takes to make a strong town is is finding low cost, high returning investments that materially strengthen a community. The greatest one that we advocate for is street trees, ensuring that street trees are being planted on the public rights of way because street trees are an amazing piece of public infrastructure. They're the only type of public infrastructure that increases in value as it ages, and adds value in increasing measure to the areas surrounding it. Contrast that with a, a foot of pipe that you stick into the ground from the moment that you put it into the ground, it becomes a ticking time bomb waiting for the day when it needs to be replaced and not adding new value to the community. Whereas a tree begins to do that, creating shade, creating a a refuge for people, adding to biodiversity, contributing in so many different ways. Another core part is we think like what are low cost, high return investments are getting people to start walking and biking by providing them safe and dignified routes within a community. And these routes are remarkably inexpensive in comparison with the amount of money that we spend on roads, on the constant upkeep and maintenance of highways, on all of the things where communities won't even bat an eye at spending millions of dollars on on a major interchange project because it just happens to be in the system. It happens to be in the, the, the mechanized sort of machine that constantly is churning out new projects like this, and in comparison, bike lanes and, and walking improvements take years at times to do, even though they can be accomplished often through pilot projects. With you know, I always say you know go to go to Home Depot or some other store, buy a bunch of garbage bins, fill them with potting soil, stick some flowers in the top, and you have great separated infrastructure. You set them in into place, and you've not only beautified the place, but you've actually made it more meaningfully engaging for people to live. Another core part of a strong town is that you must be con- constant in ensuring that people remain in the community rather than pass through it. And so we have in a, one of the challenges that a lot of our transportation policies are driven around the movement of vehicles through places. Vehicle throughput is a major item that traffic engineers are, are constantly monitoring and, and they're tr- timing the lights just to make sure that they're passing enough vehicles through. But we actually need those vehicles to stop. And and one of the things that often happens is that you'll get planning development or development applications coming in. And if they're at the, out at the edges, the, the traffic response within a lot of weaker communities is, all right, in that case, we're going to have to double down on moving people through a community because we've got edge development that they need to be able to get to the core within 15 minutes. Or they need to be able to get in an uninterrupted way, which we know doesn't actually scale very well with automobiles. We need to be able to get them in. And so then you see things like six lane roads right through the middle of communities passing by elementary schools or passing by places of worship or work and and the result is that it actually undoes the opportunity that we have when we commit public resources to making great places. And so Strong Towns is is passionate to say we need locals to identify what is a way that people are struggling and this is we call this our four-step process to public investment, not some big grants Scheme, not some big grand strategy. Instead, identify where people are struggling, then observe and ask, what is the next smallest thing that we could do to address that problem? And so if someone is doesn't have a safe route to school, how can we fix that? What What's a small thing that we can do to begin that process? And then critically go and do that thing and then repeat the process again. We have given to ourselves a whole system since the 1960s, a very mechanized, almost militarized command control systems where we want everything to come from the top down. And Strong Towns is really passionate to say, no, the results and the solutions need to be em- emerging in a complex adaptive way where you make one change and you're already anticipating what that change will bring. So that way you begin to be ready for for what sort of the organic growth looks like as you begin to see these things spill over. And so that that's another core part is is allowing for prosperity through the careful use of scarce resources within a community, but that a lot of times the people that are on the ground are the ones that are going to be the ones that you need to be asking the question, what should we do next? And we're often really hesitant to do that because we prefer sort of our grand plans, our, our big strategies that have gotten us into this situation.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, anyone who's listening to this from Toronto or our area can certainly, certainly relate to some of the challenges of, of the grand plans. Although I'm curious, one of the challenges that, of course, exists within going to community is this, as you noted, strong position by some people that you can't fit more people into it, that you can't, that any more neighbors are going to be bad, that, you know, sort of not in my backyard experience of people not wanting to have more development or, or an apartment building in their space. How do you talk to those people and, you know, win them over? So
2: this has been. I think an area where Strong Towns has had a great deal of success because our argument begins with a financial question. Can we afford the type of development that we've committed ourselves to? And can we afford it not just in the first life cycle of the project, but over successive life cycles? And the answer is no. When you develop a suburb, in contrast with, say, a rural outpost or a rural community, I grew up on a farm and we had to have our own septic system. We had to provide for our own drinking water through the local irrigation canals. We had to be quite self-sufficient on the farm. But what we observed is that a lot of suburban developments were popping up and they're being built all at once into a finished state, which means that the entire development gets built all at once. It all ages at the same speed, which is one challenge in terms of property values and, and the values of the assets that are there. And the fact that when replacement begins to happen, it happens as an avalanche rather than just as a trickle of one, you know, in a healthy neighborhood, you might have one home that's a bit older and that's the one that gets the roof replaced. And then that sets off the next person nearby to be like, oh, maybe I should think about doing that. In a lot of our suburbs, what we're going to see is that they will all face these huge repair bills all around the same time. And you see all of the challenges that come with that. But tied into that is that the suburbs are being built, especially in Ontario. We lived outside of St. Catharines, and you could see this where they're being built with a high degree of service. Rural areas don't expect a high degree of service, but our suburbs, we've basically made the promise you, you can live out in the community and have a high degree of service, which then raises the question, why would you ever let anyone else in? You have all that you need. And so in strong towns, we talk about that as the bad party. In a good party, if you're hosting a party and some other people show up that you didn't ex- expect, but they come with other things with them in this town context, that would be, we can now afford not just a volunteer fire brigade but a paid professional force, or we can now have better water than we previously did because we have more people coming in, then the result is you're like, oh, this is a good party. Like As people enter, it gets more engaging. The suburbs are a bad party. They are a bad party because the roads become more congested and you're dependent upon those roads because the sidewalks are inadequate. There's no way that someone's going to walk five kilometers to the local store or different pieces like that. But there's also... There's no new additional spending that is going to come into your community. The the money would just be going to pay for other things elsewhere. And so you see this with, you know, brand new community centers being built out on the outskirts of a community. Well, that means they have everything that they need. They have the school most of the time, they they have the community center, and they basically get to just drive to everything that they need within 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And, And the sales, the realtors are more than happy to sell that vision move to the country you're only you notice how the the brochures are always like only 5 minutes from downtown Oshawa or 5 minutes from you know Pickering and you're like yeah but for how long because we have this in our community where we have towers going up and they di- they advertise 360 degree views in White Rock BC well that's a check that you can't cash because before long another building is going to come along and suddenly you're down to 340 degree view well you were promised in the brochure and so This is the challenge that we do come up against. And one of the ways in which Strongtown's push is against this is to say that no neighborhood should be subject to radical change because that's what a lot of people do fear. They fear radical change where they come back 10 years later and they don't even recognize the place that they're in. But the flip side of it is no neighborhood should be exempt from change. But most of our suburbs, even with their, their design standards, all of the different codes that they have, have exempted themselves from any form of ongoing change. There's no new small business that starts up in the front yard of one of the parcels. There's no you know, redevelopment to, to turn it into an apartment or things like that, because it's all built all at once to a finished state, according to a master plan, everything in its proper place. But that's very modern and doesn't allow for a complex adapt- adaptation to what's going to take place. And so when you begin to see that every neighborhood should be able within that neighborhood to develop housing to the next increment of intensity. So a duplex should become a quadplex, a quadplex should become a walk-up apartment. And if that's just happening in the same way that my neighbors sometimes decide to get a new vehicle, but I don't weigh in on whether they get that vehicle or not, it just shows up one day, housing should be much the same way. And historically, for thousands of years, it was always that way. Go back in Canada's history. First Nations communities didn't have lengthy public hearings before they dis- determine whether it was necessary to build an additional form of lodging. Even you know, as cities became more established and grid-like and things like that, it was only after Second World War that we begin to really see the imposition of, of strict regulations on what could be built, when and where, and by whom. And the trouble is, is that it actually removed a lot of the local sustainable practices of, of thickening communities from within. And instead, you began to see the encroachment of 80, 90, 100 acres of farmland suddenly being just torn up and turned into houses. You began to see this this neglect of inner ring suburbs at the expense of of the opportunity that you'd already invested in that area. The assumption those were the areas where more growth would occur, that all got cut off. And when you do that, when you put a neighborhood under amber, uh, it kills it. Uh, It doesn't bring any new life to it. And so it becomes a terrible party. That no one is is happy about and yet they're really struggling. so there isn't part of it is that there's a financial cost to the way that we've developed, and when you can convince fiscal conservatives hey your your ad, your advocacy for you know parking mandates and things like that is, is actually not you know open market and it's certainly not well well justified on a financial side. there's that there's also the sustainability side. We know that our suburban pattern of development consumes way more resources. In a sense, than it should, uh, or than we really feel comfortable doing, and so we don't have the benefits of of living in in vibrant neighborhoods. We struggle with those things. We try to overcome them, th- those gaps, and realize over time that we've we've limited the potential for human flourishing because of that. So, uh, as as you can tell, it's a bit of a complex question, but I do I think it's so critical for us to know how do we engage people and encourage them to see that change within. The community. And you know, one of our contentions is housing belongs on housing lands. If we've set it aside for housing, let's make sure that we have housing. And if we need to adapt that to meet a greater need, then we should be adapting the existing housing lands instead of blowing highways through green belts and doing all the sorts of things that come along with just the ceaseless energy and consumption of, of the suburban growth machine.
1: Yeah, for sure. In our pre-conversation, I mentioned that this thing that's the sprawl has been called Ontario's oil sands. Because when you look at our emissions, it is, I think it's like 40% transportation, which is roughly in line with what Alberta's emissions are from, you know, from oil extraction. And that is a huge problem. And, and honestly, in some ways, more intractable than oil extraction. Right? Like it's oil extraction. You could imagine just a world where, like, yeah, we'll do the work and then we will have electric vehicles and other things and and better public transit, yada, yada, that will let us use less oil and then we'll shut those things down. But, like, without the ability to move people out of these sprawl based communities or without really committing to changing these sprawl based communities into complete communities, which would require significant zoning efforts, you do sort of get trapped a little bit in the ways that we've already built ourselves. And that's one of the biggest pieces of this. It's like, Really, about trying to break ourselves out of these rigid structures that we've built over the last hundred years into car-based environments, and you mentioned a little bit of sustainability there, but you know given that we are a climate change show, I'm wondering if you can expand at least a little bit on that. you know what are the climate benefits of, of taking this path forward? At strong counts, part of our
2: message and effort to reach a very broad audience, particularly in the us, where a lot of things have become very polarized, is to really refine things to a local perspective and an encouragement of local action. So there is, in one sense, I'll I'll begin maybe negatively to say that we are cautious about the engagement with the high level, the IPCC, or other sorts of strategies for global carbon containment and different things like that. At the same time, critically, we believe that a strong town is a place that has great environmental sustainability features when people walk rather than get in a vehicle because they're encouraged to walk but not only that they're not just scolded into walking more but actually enabled to do so because it's the most convenient thing to do or it's the most you know useful thing for for somebody to walk or to roll to a store because there's there's that adjacency there's all of those those local benefits if people are encouraged to find ways to grow local food not simply because they've been cajoled into doing so on 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 economic or i mean on on moral grounds but just for economic reasons that it makes sense to have a plot of garden all of those types of things if we begin to see places where as we address what what the proper way to develop a neighborhood consists of in terms of a mixed development not just of mixed uses but of of the fluidity of uses where something can be a coffee shop one day can become a law office the next day can become a house the next day and and then revert over to a community center What that does is it unleashes this this understanding that the local action of residents to address their own needs will almost certainly result in better environmental outcomes, better economic outcomes, social outcomes as well, to get people walking, even do do things like get rid of parking. Donald Shoup is a, a great expert on parking, and he said that parking is a fertility drug for traffic. So why do we keep injecting this fertility drug into our cities through the requirement of of a mandatory minimum parking amounts, through the ways in which we continue to allocate so much of our public roadways and, and the rights of way? We say most of, of the sides of these streets is reserved for the parking and storage of, of automobiles. We have options. We have the choice to be able to do otherwise. We can say, you're going to, you know, be able to benefit a community if if there's less space devoted to tarmac, if there's less ground allocated to just impervious storage spaces for for vehicles, and so that that's a key part of it. Another element of it is that when a community, one of the consequences of our very consumptive practice of building su- suburbs, building them all at once to a finished state, means it's really difficult to reuse anything because you would simply not have enough, you know, raw materials from one demolition to be able to use on, on a secondary structure. Everything has to be new. Everything is shipped in. Everything is brought in often from overseas or from other places. And, and the strong towns approach would say, no, as you develop incremental change within neighborhoods, you actually create a lot of opportunities, much like in the old days where a lot of banks were built with the rubble of what preceded, you know, what used to be on that site. A lot of homes used to be constructed at least 20%, 30% with recycled material. And now it requires, you know, very heavy rebates and all sorts of special schemes in order for us to do that. But an element of that is because we've not allowed sort of shifts within the neighborhood to occur just by right. Sort of as as somebody says, I'm ready to make an investment in my neighborhood. I'm going to do these types of things. Another reality is that things like infill development, I always joke that infill development feels like something you're just getting at the dentist. Strong towns, we would say, no, it's in neighborhood investment is truly what it is. When people invest in a neighborhood, they're adding new types of housing or they're adding new retail. All of those things will have a a consequence of creating more local structures. If you add in local food production, you can really begin to supercharge the capacity that a community has, not only to be environmentally sustainable, which is a great outcome and a necessary one, but also resilient to natural disasters. So there's a future proofing that's there. Uh, We often invoke uh, Nassim Taleb's idea of anti-fragile places, the idea that you need places that actually become stronger as they are tested rather than get pushed to a breaking point and then simply break and and collapse. A lot of our suburbs are incapable of, of enduring much stress. Even a modest adjustment of interest rates is enough to send people fleeing for the exits. Well, what does it look like for communities to become stronger so that we have this ability to develop again within our communities? Um, but one thing we know is we can't be squandering land. I was just reading there's the Highway Four Thirteen project in Ontario it's looking at two thousand acres of our most productive farmland, four hundred acres of greenbelt to be cut through. That that's a stunning, a stunning and catastrophic decision making that that can't be undone. Um, I've been reading a great book by George Monbiot called "Feral: Rewilding the Earth, Land, and Sea," and it is it's again a, a great testimony to the long-term impacts of improper use of place, but then we pair that with a really positive vision that when you get place right, uh, place becomes inclusive, place becomes diverse, place becomes a good party where everyone benefits together.
1: Yeah, I think more and more you're sort of hearing this conversation around Ruggedization, ruggedization or, you know, finding ways to make our communities more resilient in, in really every way, right? Like it's not just, as you said, financially resilient, but also, you know, it, when it turned, when it, like during an ice storm, for example, is an example of how quickly you can see how orally often we are able to bounce back from that because of, you know, if you lose one, like during the ice storm in that we experienced here in Toronto, my my dad was out of power for two weeks because he was in a, you know, he was in a less dense place and it just so happen that a tree fell on a power line just going to his house specifically. And so because of that, you know, that was like the last thing to get dealt with. And for two weeks in December and January, you know, they were without power. Luckily, they were able to rely on the community, which is yep. yet another example of how you can actually begin to make yourself more resilient which is actually having a strong community around you to sort of like power their furnace so they could at least stay in their house and not freeze Mm -hmm. but still everything else was an issue for for multiple weeks and to the point where they had to like you know they were considering going to a hotel for a little while they ultimately i think didn't have to but that's just one small example of the ways in which you know poor planning and, and and lack of community resources can really create these ways where one thing goes wrong and it just tink, 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 and you're, and you're without power or in a place that is really quite dangerous.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about barriers, because obviously, you know, this is a bit of an uphill fight. You know, it like my read on this is that you're sort of fighting about a hundred years of urban planning, approximately and and so there are so many things that are ingrained in the way we do things and so many things that were built for you know not now that's for sure built for 20 30 40 50 years ago and so as you're doing this work what's the sort of the biggest barrier that you face and and how do you man navigate that
2: the single biggest barrier is the perception that there's always an orderly solution to every major problem that we face. For example, in the world of urban planning, there was we have slums or we have degraded sort of communities. To do that, we just need to bring in the bulldozers, we need to introduce the highways, we need to basically like wipe those areas away and and re- export all of the the hu- human habitation for those that were wealthy and privileged, move them out to the communities and then basically just make the rest of the city work for them. And it was that same sort of top-down orderliness that also resulted in, you know, the mapping out of power grids and ensuring that every, every so often you had a large coal plant that basically generated all of the electricity in order to create the, the systems that were necessary for the entire entirety of across Canada or across North America for that to work. And I, that is, it continues to be a great barrier. We, we describe a lot of our current regulations in North America, and I, I mean, I spent time in Ontario and know this certainly applies to here, the, that a lot of the systems are very orderly, but they're dumb that parking regulations are a great example of this. You have a bowling alley and it requires, you know, X per, x number of bowling lanes per, uh, x, pardon me, X number of parking spaces per bowling lane. If you have a restaurant, you can only have a certain number of tables and you end up in these really silly situations where the regulations are not fit for purpose. And so in contrast, strong towns would say, as we, and we see this all the time as we we talk to members, as we Find like local leaders that really begin to be captured by this vision, they realize that there's something powerful in a complex or a chaotic even, but smart approach, which is identifying how is a community like a natural ecosystem? How is it like a verdant rainforest or a, a, a you know, a lush forest, in contrast to a cornfield, where a cornfield is very orderly, very prescribed. And I think as as communities begin to grapple with things like, Doing a pilot project. What's stunning at times is they will mark out a simple bike lane and then they want to extrapolate from that. Is this a success for the whole city? Well, that's the wrong question to be asking. Only ask, was this a success here or should we try it elsewhere? People ask, like, hey, I didn't see anyone, you know, no one is cycling these days. That's the same thing as saying, you know, next to a river, no one is crossing, so we don't need a bridge. I mean, there may be situations in which you realize, oh, this is a situation that calls for this type of change. And so that is a major barrier. It is a barrier that underscores why, for example, housing, it's difficult to scale up within a neighborhood. Why we're also very resistant to allowing buildings to be built up to at the street level, to be built at the street where throughout thousands of years, we always saw that buildings were built right up to the street, except for, you know, wealthy manor homes and things like that. And the reason you would do that is because that's where the activity is and it also preserves the remainder of your parcel of land towards the back to be used for other purposes. Either you you carve it off and you allow somebody else to use it. You do all those types of things. Instead, we have these very generous setbacks and the trouble is is it's wasteful of so many things like that. And it's because of a zeal that every, every aspect of the city be very orderly. But the trouble is, is it becomes very dumb in that way as well. It cuts off opportunities that it assumes that you know, St. Catharines is the same as, as St. Louis or any other place, and you and you create those deficiencies in that. Another core part of it is a, a major barrier, is cheap energy. That would be on the environmental side. Cheap energy is continuing to fuel a lot of our very wasteful practices. But tied into that, and a major barrier is cheap money. Uh, money flows and sloshes through our system in so many ways that it makes it very advantageous for someone to do a 600, 700-unit single-family home development out in the outskirts of some farmer's former pasture. Meanwhile, someone that is just trying to convert an old, say, a, an old school building that's no longer fit for purpose, turn it into residential homes, make some of it rent rental available, they are swamped. They're, the bank doesn't even look at them. They're not interested. And so there's a way in which we've lost the ability for money to be dealt with at a local level. Everything has to meet sort of national standards. And you see, especially in the States, but even in Canada, projects being turned down because they don't have enough parking. They have enough parking according to the the municipality, but the financiers are like, nope, we're not interested. It doesn't meet our criteria for a successful project. That's still a system in which there's a lot of cheap money of people investing in product. And that product is a home or that product is a town center. Well, that's a very bizarre and very modern way of viewing what it takes to, to build communities. And as a consequence, I think that, that is, those are two additional elements, cheap energy, cheap money, as well as our our, our system of a very orderly but but dumb regulations that are holding us back.
1: Yeah, the parking minimums one is one that I have a particular beef with, I guess I'll use. I was going to say, like, I don't want to fight it, mainly because I remember distinctly There was this delicious Thai restaurant that existed in walking distance, again, from my dad's place in Scarborough here in Toronto. And it got closed down because they didn't have the minimum one parking spot. And it was like in walking distance from so many communities and so many people. And it was one of the few restaurants you actually could walk to. And yet because we couldn't drive, even though we didn't want to drive there, that was somehow a regulation that made it get shut down. I was just absolutely blown away at that moment. I was like, how possibly could you defend this kind of this kind of thing? I, like, what are you doing here? Totally. In every way, right? Well, it, Yeah, and a parallel
2: example is the Taim, a newspaper in, on, in BC wrote about a Filipino market near Joyce Street, which is one of the SkyTrain stops. And that Filipino market served the Filipino community within the area. It was in an older, more dilapidated house or building a commercial building, and that building, because of development pressures, was going to be redeveloped. The landlords said, you guys need to move on. So the owners of the Filipino market began looking right in their immediate neighborhood, but none of it was zoned for commercial. None of it, there were no other available retail units, even though right adjacent to it, right next to it, were a number of single family homes. Those homes could have had that Filipino market simply move into the main story. The first story of that structure suddenly. And that's what, again, over thousands of years, you would see retail sort of move within neighborhoods, move to the most appropriate place for it to be. And where does that market needs to be? It needs to be where the people are. Instead, I believe they moved out to an industrial area because they weren't allowed to rent anything else. They couldn't convert any of the existing residential neighborhoods into retail, even if it was in a, done in a very modest, sort of sympathetic way. And the consequences, moving out to the industrial park meant that their customer base couldn't get out to them, most of them not having vehicles or choosing not to be driving. And the result was that the the community lost, the, the neighborhood lost, and and you would say that in a sense, everyone in Vancouver lost because that was no longer present. and And the result was a consequence of these very strict, defined terms of this is retail, This is residential and the two shall never meet. When in fact, I mean, all of our older neighborhoods, you'll see dentists occupying the first floor of of an old house. You'll see a law office on the third story in an apartment. You'll see an immigration consultancy firm, you know, in the back shed of some place. There's so many things. And this is the common way in which we used to build communities. And so Strong Towns is not just a traditionalist organization, but our observation says emerges from the idea that there are these Age-old practices that we would do well to learn from, and that the last sixty years of the suburban experiment has been a, a stunning failure, has not produced wealth, has not produced environmental sustainability, has not produced any any meaningful sense of of you know anti-fragile capacity to endure. Um, we're seeing an escalation of of major problems, and and the question is maybe we need to learn some with some humility from our forebears. I think of that in terms of the environmental movement as well. The annual average consumption of, you know, whether it's, it's food or energy or, or just, you know, the, the bare basics that we have, even the amount of space that the average person has or feels entitled to in a home has, has escalated and the challenges, the carrying costs of that are overwhelming us and, and it doesn't scale and it doesn't work. And so we need to find ways to make that better. And, and we believe, I mean, a big part of it is working in collaboration with other organizations. There's going to be groups taking on things like, you know, solar install installations and removing certain regulations or imposing other regulations. But for us, a big part of it is going to be at the local level, encouraging people to take action. And so one of the things that we have is called the Strong Towns Local Conversations Program. Our our goal is to create over a thousand local conversations where these are just discussion groups, people that meet up and say, all right, let's talk in our local community What what's going on. We're seeing more and more groups that are devoted to addressing the need for more housing or for other types of services. Our goal is also to, in places where those types of groups don't currently exist to start conversations at local libraries or in local coffee shops or pubs or wherever it might be in a park. Uh, just yesterday or last Thursday, we went for a walking tour in our neighborhood called Housing Policy Walk. And it was an opportunity just to look at different forms of housing and, and the barriers that they face within the community and, and to try to engage folks that otherwise might not know about this stuff or care about it to bring them into that conversation. And, and in doing so, I think to create a deeper awareness of what assets we have at the local level, you know, not all hope is lost. There's so much opportunity that we have ahead of us, but
1: also to, to face those challenges head on. Amazing. And so second to last question. Uh, If there was one thing that you could have every city in town enact,
2: what would it be? It would be to plant trees along their streets, even if it requires taking out a portion of pavement in order to do so, in order to get that asset in place and to begin the process of greening our neighborhoods and meaningfully improving the lives of the people that live there. I would say that Everywhere that you have a fire hydrant, take out the portion portion of pavement that sits right in front of it. You don't even have to put the curb back up, but put a tree there. No one can park there anyways. And fire folks are more than capable of moving their hoses around a tree. But to do so because one of the things that is harming our cities, and this is across Canada, is the deforestation of our communities. And so we're making small, modest efforts to do this. But in my city, for example, the chief forester had to come back and say, well, we're full of." trees, and all of the places that we identified for planting. Why? Because they're planting in parks. They're planting in along on the backside of a school property. They're, they're basically putting them all in places where people aren't. The trouble is that we need them to be on our streets. That is one of the greatest ways in which we will get people to walk when it's raining, walk when it's snowing, walk when it's sunny. And particularly as we see increasing heats in our community, we know that we need shade. We're opening cooling centers in neighborhoods where trees previously had that function, and so that would be one of the best, simplest uses of of public assets in order to improve really every city across across the country.
1: Amazing! And so, if folks want to get involved in this tree planting initiative or all of the other wonderful things you've said. How can they learn more and get involved in Strong Towns?
2: Yeah, love to have you come visit us on the web at strongtowns.org. So strongtowns.org and just poke around, look at it, check out the articles page, take a listen to the Strong Towns podcast. If you are on any of the podcast apps, you can just search for the Strong Towns podcast. And that's another great resource. Again, it'll take you to topics that maybe you haven't covered before, but that's been a great opportunity for people to learn about issues that are affecting their local communities, to give thought to what it means to really pursue the development of communities in a way that's complex, but adaptive, complex, but responsive to ongoing in- inputs and challenges that, that we face. And over time, if you're interested in it, do consider joining as a member as well, because membership helps to build the movement and accelerate the change that we're seeking to see in our communities.
1: Amazing. Well, it is our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. So I will throw to you in half a second for, for one last thought. But before I do, this has been Norm Van Eden-Petersman, the member advocate for Strong Towns. Thank you so much for for what you do and, and for chatting with us. And yeah, any last thoughts?
2: Just an encouragement. Look around you. You'll see not only the needs that are there, but as you look harder, you'll also see there's some great opportunities ahead.